Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. The best part of the podcast is that we get to use it as an excuse to interview people yeah. who otherwise wouldn't sit down and give us an hour and a half of their time. Media want to talk when it's a perfect story. So it yeah. becomes like the only platform for sports science in the media whose argument is that a masseuse injected her with EPO while she was asleep. By the way, the Irish Times made the shoot this athlete of the year. Um, <laughs> That's the right award. So welcome to our final episode of 2019 of the Science of Sport podcast. And as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. My name is Mike Finch. And uh, we've been spending a bit of time talking about the last uh, sort of 23 episodes of the Science of Sport podcast and looking at all the highlights throughout the year. And our goal in our podcast wrapping up 2019 is to kind of look at some of the highlights of this year, some of the amazing interviews we had with some of the best and most knowledgeable people in the world of science of sport and also some of the athletes involved, and also some of the awards which we're going to be handing out this year. Um, it's, there are awards, they're very subjective, and uh, we don't make any apologies for them. Some of them might be a bit controversial. And don't forget, you can also let us know what you think about our awards this year, because uh, we have, a, of course, a Twitter account, which is SportsSciPod, and you can uh, interact with us on there and let us know what you think about our awards for 2019. Also, what do you think about the podcast this year? Next year, we've got a couple of plans up our sleeves. We've got a, a couple of themes, of course, next year's a, tw- a big... Uh, Olympic year and uh, we're going to be doing some special stuff around Olympics we're looking at some stuff around nutrition as well and we'll be starting this podcast in the new year and around about the middle of January so a bit of a break for us over the festive season just to fatten ourselves up for the for the new year. Professor Ross Tucker welcome back I know that we've had a bit of a break between our podcasts but it's been a it's been an incredible year in the in the sports science space really because there's been so much to talk about and the first one in fact the first couple of podcasts that we did was around the very controversial Castor many issue. Where are we with Castor Semenya now, literally nine months after we did those initial couple of podcasts? Yeah, Mike, it's um, it's been a fun year, actually. I, the best part of the podcast is that we get to use it as an excuse to interview people yeah. who otherwise wouldn't sit down and give us an hour and a half of their time. So <laughs> we sit with Kirsten and Mallet and Trent Stellingworth and Amelia Boone and Don Scott. And I think it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I've certainly learned a lot. Yeah. The caster thing is um, out of sight, out of mind, I think. Yeah. There are very few people now talking about it. It was huge in, when was the decision? I think in May. Yeah. Um, the trial was in February, I remember. It was this time last year, preparing for that. Um, and then after the decision in May, there was just an absolute storm of activity. And then it very quickly died down. And now... The thing is, it's sitting with uh, the legal process because there's all sorts of appeals and those things happen in the basement of some judicial building in Switzerland. And so no one knows what's going on. I expect that there will be at some point um, a decision. I'd be very surprised if that decision overturns Cass's. I think there's a reluctance from the non-sporting world to stick its fingers into the sporting one. So I think that that probably then just uh, fades away. There were there have been a couple of articles in the last few weeks. There was a Ugandan athlete called Annette Nagesa, 
who got political asylum. I don't know if that's the right word, but anyway, she's now, she's now a resident in Germany. Yeah. And she was interviewed in a piece a week or so ago that I read and, and quite sad. She said that she couldn't go back home because once she'd been outed in effect, she, she came out and said herself that she had the same condition. She was rejected by people back home. And that was the kind of social thing that was going to happen out of this. So her story was published last week and it was a reminder of the damage I think that's done. But I think most people uh, probably are saying, well, you know, it was a necessary decision that was made for the sake of the sport. And then obviously there are people on the other side that says, no, how, how can you, how can you do this? So I don't think the problem was solved, but I think the problem goes away just because it's stopped from ever manifesting now. Yeah, tragic in many ways as well. For us in South Africa, obviously very close to our heart. And we've seen Castor Semenya used in a lot of advertisements here in South Africa, ironically, almost in defiance of some of the changes and the and the rules now and the IWF's decisions that they've almost said, okay, well, you, you know, she's been very much castigated by everybody. But um, in South Africa, she's still seen as a big hero here. Yeah, and overseas. Nike yeah. produced an advertisement. There was one last yeah. year this time and another one came out a month or so ago. So she remains in the public eye, but just not on the track. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, people can take whatever position they wish to on that. I wish that there was a solution that wasn't a net loss, you know, because had Cass sided with her, there would have been controversy in the other direction. Yeah. Um, and I completely understand that. I think it's the most, and I've said this for years, it's the most complex problem in sport because you have a person who by no choice of their own finds themselves subjected to this kind of scrutiny around who they are. Yeah. And it's not fair on her, but then you can, you can make the argument that it's not fair for other people because we have this dividing line between men and women for a specific reason. And there is a theoretical argument to be made there. So whoever adopts a position on that issue that it's simple and it's black and white and so on, I think has either grossly misunderstood the complexity well, they've chosen to lobby instead of to inform. And people are welcome. I mean, as you said, it, I think it was our second and third episode. Yeah, that's right. Um, we tried to explain how complex this was. And, you know, I ended up, as I said, testifying at that court case. And I was really 51, 49. Yeah. <laughs> and depending on the day, it was the other direction. It just, it's such a complex issue. Yeah. So lots of highlights with you. I'm going to suggest that maybe Cassis Semenya, if you had to talk about a newsmaker of the year, she's probably our newsmaker of the year in many ways as an, as an individual. Certainly in science of sport. I mean, yeah. um, you can think of other newsmakers outside of the world of sport, but I think as a transcendent sports person, I would agree. Are the highlights through for you this year? What's uh, kind of sticks out from 2019 is from a, a sports science perspective? Well, the other, th you see, unfortunately, and I do hate this about sports science is that it tends to be controversial topics. Yeah. It's very hard to, um, it's not hard. I mean, it's very easy to actually tell the scientific story of success, but the, the thing people often want to hear is the explanation when things go badly. So doping as usual has been an issue, Salazar, Russia, and so on. And then of course the shoes, because marathon running has changed, not just in 2019. I think that people have made, I think a mistake of looking at 2019 as the watershed year. I think the watershed year was 2016 when the first edition of these shoes came out. Talking about the Nike Vaporfly here, of course. Yeah. So that was the yeah. 4%. Yeah which initially was used in the sub two hour attempt in Monza, which the one that fell short by 25 seconds. 
That was then improved on this year in the form of what they call the next percent. And then, of course, when Kipchoge eventually does go sub two, there's the next version, which is the alpha fly. So it's very difficult to know where we are now in terms of how much performance has changed, other than to say it's changed massively. And so every single time there is a world-class running performance, whether it's a woman's world record, which we saw, whether it's the sub two, whether it's a record number of qualifiers for the U.S. Olympic trials, whether it's a national, whatever, you take your pick. Yeah the shoe becomes the talking point, And that's not how running is supposed to be. And then people will say, well, then stop talking about the shoe. Well, you can't because at the moment, the shoe is distorting the reality of performance so much that you can't have a conversation normally about it. So I, I read just the other day, like the world 25 or of course 25K record was smashed. And the guy says afterwards, he now thinks he can run 203. Yeah, well, 2.03 now is a, is a normal marathon time. Yeah. It was the equivalent of 2.05 to 2.06 just four years ago. Now it's not. And you can't, you can't look at running with an analytical eye and not acknowledge that we are now in a new era. I mean, we were going to talk specifically about this. We may as well stay on the topic of this Nike shoe. Is it fair to say that if you had to talk, and it's controversial because often we look at these things and we say, if there was a tech product of the year, this would be it, but it's a double-edged sword with this one because most tech would say, well, this is a great piece of tech. It really works. It is a great piece of tech. It's mm. hugely innovative, but it has changed the sport. And now you've got some stats around the actual stats, which prove without a shadow of a doubt that you can't deny that these shoes have had a profound effect on the sport of running. Yeah. And it can be both. It can be a, it can be a great piece of tech. For sure. And still illegal <laughs> <laughs> or should be in my opinion. Yes. It should still be regulated. And then people say, oh, how can you regulate? And well, every sport regulates its equipment to some degree. Javelins, they control the mass and the center of mass. Pole vaults are regulated. Bicycles are, are regulated. Yeah. Otherwise, it would become ridiculous and would undermine the value of true competition. So I think that it's obvious that the shoe has made a massive difference. I mean, I was listening to the Let's Run podcast uh, just before we, we spoke this morning. And they've got 700-odd qualifiers in the Olympic marathon. Yeah. That's, yeah, and then you can say, oh, there's been changes in training and diet. Like, come on, get out of here. Like, From one year to the next. Sports science doesn't work like that. And yeah. you're not going to get hundreds of people suddenly changing. Sub-210 marathons, um, as a journalist who will be well-known to many of you, especially in the States, Tony Rivas has documented how many sub-210s there were in each of the last four years. So we go from 2016 – 150, 186, 215, and then in 2019, 293. And then on the women's side, the equivalent is two, sub 230. It goes 177 to 221 to 239 to 339 times that a woman has broken 230. Now, what that means is that 230 today is the equivalent of a 226, 227 four years ago. Yeah. And it's a pity that the Drevis doesn't go back to 2014-15 because the line that was drawn was 2016. And yeah. that's when the 4% begins slowly to change things. And now it's just changed to the point where if I'm an elite runner with another shoe company and I'm going to run in, in the Olympics or try and qualify or run any of these major marathons, I'd be negotiating to get a, a pass to wear a different shoe because that if it's two to two, two and a half, three percent, that's insurmountable. Yeah. 
You know, so yeah, you could give Kipchoge a pair of uh, plimsoll sandals, and he probably ran two hundred six. Yeah, but uh, if you're running two hundred seven to two hundred six, you could medal at the Olympics, but not if you're not in the shoe. Exactly. I mean, if if you think about some of those top athletes that have been sponsored by individual brands, if they're not in the shoe, the chances are that everybody that's going to be in the Olympic marathon next year is probably going to qualify in a pair of these Nike mm. shoes. On that, yeah, I mean, exactly. there's no or. In a pair of Nike shoes with a couple of other bits and bobs hanged onto them to make them look like they're actually wearing another shoe. Yeah. But you'll be able to see it, which has happened. Yeah, it's happened. Um, and so you've put athletes in a situation where they've got to violate their contract to yeah. be competitive. And if you're the IAAF or World Athletics, as they're now known, because they rebranded this year. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah, yes. I, know, I know that, but I can't get my mind to say it. <laughs> um, you, you, can't, you can't look at that and say, this is fine. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And is, it, is it a case of other shoe companies now needing to catch up because it doesn't look like the IWF are going to do anything? So it's just a case of other shoe companies are going to say, okay, we have to use similar technology and find a way to be competitive. They'll have to, but will they be able to? Given that Nike's got hundreds of patents. Yeah. So I read a piece the other day. Sketches had done something where they put a carbon fiber plate in, and they were sued by Nike. So will will the industry allow itself to be open? enough to allow competition. That's yeah. the problem. So how many, I suppose, companies could use this PBAX foam? They could curve the plate. But I don't know enough about patent law to know at what point you start infringing on them. But even if they can, and it takes two years, like that's two years worth of distorted results that for me lack meaning. I, Again, you see this 159, what was it, 159.51 or something? I can't even remember because it doesn't matter 49, to me. 49, wasn't it? 49? Could be. In seconds? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. It was well under. Sub two. We should know this, I suppose. Sub two. And you say, what was the best marathon year? It wasn't that one. No. That wasn't even Kipchoge's best marathon this year. Well, I mean, but let's- I can't, I can't interpret it because that was, in a, that was in a shoe that no human being had ever run in before. Yeah. And it could, if that shoe's two additional percent better than the previous one, we're talking a 6% economy benefit. That's yeah. a, a 4 to 5% performance advantage. Yes. That, that performance is virtually meaningless. Yeah. So just on that point, I know that the BBC named their sort of sports person of the year is Elliot Kipchoge. It's something that you and I agree on is that we don't agree with that. I mean, in, in essence, it's, a, it's, a, it's not the award that sh- that's not the person that should have got the award for sportsman of the year purely because of this distorted benefit of the shoe. Yeah, and he, look, he's still the best marathon runner. For sure. I don't think there is anyone else in the same shoe that runs 159.50 or something. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Kenenisa Bikile just for a second there. I mean, his performance in Berlin, not far off the world record, running on his own, not the same shoe, was he? Uh, you see, this is where it gets... We don't know. Like, is he running he in was, a prototype, especially for him, yeah. the same as Kipchoge? I don't, don't know. know. Yeah. Um, Maybe he's running. So, so when Kipchoge set the current world record, two hundred one thirty nine, he was running in the four percent. Yeah. If the if the next percent is better, then Kenanisa Bekele was in that one. Yes. Which means that his two two hundred one forty one is not comparable to the two hundred one thirty nine because they're in different shoes that might give. Do you see the problem here? Yeah, yeah we're <laughs> like, ready. We're you t- can't getting ourselves tied up here. Yeah, and everyone <laughs> says, it, it kills me on Twitter. Everyone says, oh, what do you want them to do, run barefoot? No, you idiot. Like the, the opposite <laughs> of unregulated tech is not no tech at all. Yeah. It just means can we have enough confidence in what we're seeing that the thing we're seeing in one generation is comparable? Yeah. In one race. 
Next year's US Olympic trials will be decided by who has access to the advantage of a shoe. Yeah. So in the same race, you've got this, it's, yeah. So what was the best marathon of the year? Who knows? Well, we talked a little bit before the podcast that uh, Bigot Koskai, um, probably in her marathon in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, again, running in that shoe, but an outstanding uh, performance. So that's, remember, that's a record that was untouchable. Yeah. And she didn't just touch it. She bashed it. It's record that we're talking about, which is about, what, 15 years old or something? Yeah, two, 2003, I think it was, yeah. 2002, three. Yeah. Two, two fifteen twenty five. She's now a minute 21 faster. Yeah. Like it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but not being pace set and not being, yeah, you know, all, all those sort of things. I mean, it was, a, it was a proper without just, not just, not discounting the shoe, but yeah. it was, it wasn't contrived in any other way other than the shoe. So it makes it to a degree comparable. Yeah. So we can say, okay, Bridget Koska has run the fastest marathon. We yeah. still can't evaluate it in the context of recent history, but at least it's semi-comparable. I just, yeah, I, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> right. I know that you probably, all of you listening on the Twitter sphere and listening to our podcast, we've, we've shared many uh, different views on that. Well, not different views. We've had a very similar view, both Ross and I, and certainly Ross's um, opinion about the shoe has been controversial to start off with. But I think as people become more knowledgeable about the advantage of the shoe, it's become quite evident that the shoe has changed the sport. And uh, I think one of our most popular podcasts, which was called The Shoe That Broke Running, certainly got a lot of reaction. But I think a lot of people learned a lot of lessons. They have. And just, just one last stat, because I do love me some numbers. You do love uh, me some numbers. Davo Savida posted this on Twitter back in early December, and he'd tallied how many sub-207s they've been. So 207, now you're talking top, top performances, because in 2015, there were seven of them. Yeah. So 2016, nine of them. 2018, sorry, 2017, nine of them. 2018, nine of them. So running sub-207 puts you in the top 10 in the world. In 2019, there were 31. Yeah. And that's outside, sorry, this is outside the big major marathons. So we're talking here, Tokyo, Rotterdam, Paris, Dubai. 31 performances that before would have been top, top level. Now you wouldn't even get an invite. <laughs> so that's how much the sport has changed yeah, in, in, in this year because of the wider adoption of the shoe. And maybe this becomes the new normal and that's fine. But then stop talking glowingly about 204s because they don't mean the same thing as 204s used to mean. I'll tell you one thing I'm going to do in 2020. I've got to get me a hang of those pair of those shoes just to try them out because I think what's interesting is they do they only benefit those running at those sort of paces or do you think you and I plodding along at five and a half minutes a K would get some benefit from running? running Everyone. Those, everybody. everybody. And in fact, the performance benefit will get bigger the slower you go. Okay. Because – because good to the, know for me. Yeah, because the <laughs> running economy benefit, I suspect, will stay similar. Yeah. Because no, there's no reason to think of, unless you start getting so slow that your ground contact times are really long, and then it might be that you lose a lot of the benefit from the elastic energy return. So, in fact, I think by the time you start going really, really slowly, you probably lose some benefit. Yeah. But if you get the same 1% economy benefit, the slower you go, the better the performance. So my sub 50 10K could be on in 2020 in my 50th year, maybe. 
It could be. You could run your age in a 10K. <laughs> That's a good goal. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the interviews we had this year. And they were such amazing interviews. And I know there was a couple of them that we actually almost held back. I know we sp spoke to Peter Bills, who wrote a book on the All Blacks. And that was one of the first ones that we recorded. But we only played it out much, much later, close to the Rugby World Cup. But there were many great interviews. I remember particularly talking to Nick Mallett, head of the Rugby World Cup. Gary Kirsten, again, fantastic listening to him talking about some of the his experiences, not only as a top-class cricketer, but I think the one thing that sticks out in the interview with Gary Kirsten, we'll talk about who our favourite interview was um, when I'm finished here, but Gary was talking about, we asked him what it was like to step into the crease as an opening batsman facing some of the fastest bowlers in the world, and did he feel fear? And what was his answer? He said yes. We, did, we didn't But it wasn't the fear that you and I feel. No, it wouldn't be the fear that I've got of being killed by the ball. Then. Yes, it was a fear of failure rather than a fear of being hurt. Yeah, which which is understandable. Yeah. I think I think at some point when you're developing as a young athlete, you overcome the fear of being hurt. Yeah, and you realise that that's just a bruise that goes away quickly. But when you fail in front of millions of people potentially, then that one sticks with you a little bit longer. Yeah. And then we asked, remember, we asked Nick Mallett the same thing. Were you afraid as a player going up against other guys? He said, no, never. Yeah. So, but the fear was interesting. And um, Kirsten spoke to us about how he dealt with that. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that interview because he was really candid. I mean, Kirsten is a guy who's done so many media obligations in his life. And yeah. one thing that you note with elite athletes and coaches and people in sport is they 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 become very adept at saying nothing without speak. They say a lot without saying anything at all. But you just have to listen to the end of match interview yeah, yeah, for rugby exactly. or cricket. <laughs> exactly, it's like they just link six cliches. <laughs> Proud of the boys, gave their best, oh, gave one hundred and ten percent credit to the opposition, me. but our guys put their hand up and stuck to the processes. <laughs> Come on, man. And uh, but Kirsten, Kirsten's never been like that. He's always no. been quite a thoughtful guy. But I thought with us, he was especially candid and, and very yeah. enlightening. So go back and listen to that. You know what the funniest thing about that was? I was in London around the time of the Cricket World Cup, and the English were looking for a new coach. And there was a whole spread in the paper yeah. about how they they didn't appoint Kirsten because they didn't feel that he had the the, the corporate business image. And when you listen to that podcast, you listen to a guy whose message is 100% on point for businesses. Yeah. I can't think of a coach I've met who's better at business thinking yes. than, than Kirsten. So English Cricket Board, That's you true. guys missed out yeah. on potentially a great coach because you didn't listen to this podcast. Go back and listen and you'll hear Gary Kirsten teach you about business. And I loved the one thing he said when he joined the uh, England, the Indian cricket team as the coach and uh, his initial reaction was to go in there and say, well, what can I teach these guys? Mm. And he was very humbled by the fact that he realized he couldn't teach these Indian players how to play cricket better. He just had to kind of guide them and help them in a system because that was really his role as a coach and he was very successful at doing that. Exactly. And now here we are in South Africa. We've got new coaches yep. on our cricket team and everyone's saying, oh, they've got no experience. Will they succeed? Won't they? The thing that will determine if they succeed or not is whether they go in there and tell people what to do or whether they go in there and listen to what people need to do. That's the key. Best interview of the year for you? I really enjoyed Dom Scott's as well. Um, it was one of the first we did, and she was especially open. I, I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but I, I don't remember listening – to an athlete talk so openly about the challenges of being an athlete, you know, the yeah. challenges of the discipline, the sacrifice. She spoke so much about the guilt that she feels for dragging her family 
into her, what she called selfish pursuit of success. And uh, I thought that was pretty special that she'd be that open about it. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that one. So one of the things that uh, Dom kind of talked to us a little bit about was um, when she was, uh, when she collapsed during the World Cross Country Championships um, that this year and how that played into physiology. What was very fascinating about that was I never realized that an athlete at that level could push themselves to the point of collapse because we always believe that an athlete and the body is capable of just protecting itself to a point where it will not collapse. Yeah, um, which that that belief that the body protects itself completely reliably without any failure is is one of the problems with what I think was the oversimplification about the whole central governor thing. So as you know, I did my PhD on this. Now we're going back to my former life. <laughs> um, and when I was doing my PhD, the, the problem was that it was positioned in such a way as there was this fail-safe mechanism, you know, like think of it as a short circuit where the moment things got potentially threatening, the body would step in, the brain would step in and say, that's it, you're done, no more. Um, but then when you look at real life, you do see collapses. Scott was one of them, a uh, chapter guy in Uganda at the cross country a couple of years before. Uh, Jim Peters going back to 1954, Gabriel Anderson in 1984. So these things happen. And they represent effectively failures of that physiology, but not even necessarily absolute failures because Scott was still fine. She still got she up. She recovered quickly. Yeah. She recovered. So it's kind of like when you faint, when your blood pressure drops. To an extent, that's a failure, but it's actually also an emergency thing that's saving you because fainting is the thing that's going to actually, it's like the body's last resort. And so when she spoke to us about that, it was really cool because you're listening to an elite athlete describe what it's like to go through last resort territory as a in in, the, in physiological terms it was it's pretty interesting to hear her describe it never caught my breath for almost eight kilometers and never had a clear mind that's for sure i was constantly in the zone and focused and then i had two kilometers to try and run one last crazy hard 2ks and try and be in that top 30 um and the race itself was actually just over 10,000 meters it was about 10,240 meters which in cross country they're allowed to do the race is allowed to be slightly over or under distance. Um, and I was coming down the second final downhill for the course and I felt my legs buckle underneath me. Um, you know, the one leg kind of wobbles, then the other kind of wobbles. Once again, I'm trying to throw myself down this incredibly steep hill. Um, but I'm still running. I'm still on two feet and take the turn to start going up the Smooth God Museum roof one final time. I've already done it four times. Oh, so you were on that back straight there where you ran next to what looked like a forest. This is where it happened. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And now I'm climbing yeah. up the roof for the mm. final time. Um, and you have the spectators all cheering for you alongside the roof. And... I don't know what happened, but I guess I just blacked out and fell into the crowd. And apparently I was verbally saying, I want to finish, I want to finish, let me finish. And, you know, trying to crawl my way, trying to keep moving. And my husband, I guess, had seen my legs buckling on the downhill and knew that I was in trouble. Um, and he had kind of run over to me. He didn't want to touch me because he wasn't sure if, if he touched me, if I'd immediately be disqualified. But I guess every the spectators themselves were so worried about me that they pretty much 
took me out of the race themselves. Um, I don't think I was in the state to finish. You know, my husband was like, dumb. I don't think he would have made it. But at that point, I was halfway up this hill, the Moose God Museum roof yeah. hill, and I had about 300 meters to the finish. So I was like 950 meters through this course, which is just, you know, insane, um, right outside 30th. So, um, yeah, I've never run that hard before. I don't think I've ever really wanted something so bad before either. Um, definitely put a lot of pressure on myself going into the race. Um, you know, having spent three weeks away from my husband in Boulder preparing for this race, having my dad, husband and coach fly across the world to watch me race. Um, I really wanted to do something special, not only for myself, but for them and for South Africa. Um, and I, you know, I thought I was ready to do it. And I guess I wasn't quite ready on that day or didn't maybe run the right way to achieve that goal. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I was distraught afterwards um, and embarrassed. I got carried off on a stretcher and I thought they were carrying me head first down the hill. And I guess I just kept screaming like, let me go, let me go, or not downhill, something like that. And I guess they weren't carrying me downhill backwards, but that's how um, I guess my head was spinning, that I was so uncomfortable. So speaking of physiology, one of the uh, interesting stories we spoke to uh, right at the end of the year, in fact, was this new concept, well, new for me particularly, was Red S, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And we had a couple of chats to some very interesting people. Of course, Mary Kane was the big poster girl for the story, but we spoke to Amelia Boone as well. But maybe, Ross, you can just explain the Red S phenomenon. It, it isn't something new, but it suddenly kind of reached new heights this year. Yeah, Mary Kane put it front and center. And by front and center, we're talking New York Times front and center. Yeah. So that's as big as it gets. And it it, um, it was the culmination of a bad couple of months for Alberta Salazar, let's face it. If, <laughs> if you, if you think had you've a bad had a bad year. 2019, yeah. Salazar had a four-year ban slapped on him for doping practices with his crew in, in, in the Nike Origin Project. And then Mary Kane basically came out with this revelation that he had... I hesitate to use the word abused, but... Or fat-shamed, yeah, want of a better term, weight-shamed. Basically, she finds herself in this environment where it's all about performance, it's relentless, and it's harsh. And I mean, this is elite sports, so you don't expect things to be comfortable and easy. But she tells a series of stories about how he was pressuring her to lose weight, and she couldn't get there. So the physiology was standing in the way, and eventually... She went to these extraordinary lengths, going on these two-hour walks with hand weights to try and lose a little bit of extra weight and doing six hours of core a day because Salazar told her that would burn calories and so on. Um, and so she, she gets osteoporosis, um, number of stress fractures. And so that's the catalyst to start talking about what I think is quite an important issue for all athletes. Um, it's often portrayed only as, a th as an issue that affects women. And it used to be known as the female athletic triad. The red S, and if, the, if you want a little bit more on this, go back and listen to that podcast. Yeah. The, the, the change in the name and the, and the reframing of it reflects the realization that this was actually much more complex than just three things, and also that it affects men and women. And basically what it's characterized by is prolonged energy deficiency. So you are exercising a lot and you are eating too little, and your body then responds to that by shutting off what are otherwise important physiological systems. And so one of them that's shut off is this 
hypothalamic system that controls menstrual function in women. And so they become amenorrheic. And so we spoke to Trent Stellingworth and his wife, Hillary. Um, she'd been an elite athlete. He's an elite physiologist, I would, I would call him. Yeah. And they were pretty candid and open about the challenges. Why weight and body mass and even body fat should not be the object of the coach's attention. And I think pretty useful. And then we and then we wrapped that up talking to Amelia Boone, who Well just just to take a step back there, the message that came out for me most strongly was the fact that young athletes, particularly young female athletes, when they start losing their period, it's not right for that to happen. That yes. was one of the things that I always believed that that was a case at the elite level sport for women, yeah. that if you if you were at a certain level you were gonna lose your period, amenorrhea, and that is not actually that shouldn't happen. Yeah, you and half of cross-country women, there was a, and I spoke about this in that pod, 44% of yeah. um, cross-country athletes in the US thought it was normal. Yeah. And so it's so common. It just happens because you, yeah. you train hard, you don't necessarily eat that well. Sometimes the two happen in conjunction with one another. Sometimes they happen because the coach is pushing you to do it, as in Mary Kane's situation. And by the time you become amenorrheic, your body has already taken a number of emergency steps to try and protect you. you know, yeah. it's, it's basically shutting down some systems. Yeah. And for your own benefit. So it's actually yeah. quite an important survival benefit because yeah. reproductive function is a luxury in a sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, by the time you get to that point, know that it's, that it's far along in the process and you need to act. It's not normal mm. to, to lose your period as a, as a female athlete. And for men, it's similar. But obviously, they may not get that 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 signal, so they have to pay attention to quality of their sleep, um, how well they're recovering in training, body mass, libido. <laughs> libido is a yeah. crucial one. I yeah. mean, Trent brought it up. He said one of the signs in men. So, so yeah. So if you're 19, 20 years old and you don't have a libido and you're training really hard, good chances are you, have, you are over the line. <laughs> you're over the line. You're over the line. Not in so, a good way. Yes, exactly. So yeah, very interesting, I think. And, and, and I hope that people who listened to that either had their misperceptions corrected or knew it, but maybe hadn't had the penny drop or the light go on just yet. And now they, now they do because, and they both said it, like education is the key to prevention of this particular issue. So know the signs, you know, keep a training diary and just monitor how yeah. well you've slept, how you're feeling. Are you eating well? Are you recovering well? And so on. And obviously for women to keep a track of menstrual function. And also for elite athletes to remember that, you know, just because you're leaner doesn't make you faster. And actually, ironically, if you get down to these positions, your long-term prospects in the sport that you're participating in is probably going to be very limited because of injuries that we talked about. So that's really the message that comes out of there. Yes, you might be super lean. And most of the athletes that we see on the track at World Championships and Olympic Games, which we'll see next year, get to a point where they're probably very close to that relative energy deficiency point, but they only get to that point very close to competitive and to, to competition. They're not like that all year. So those young athletes who look at the Instagram pictures of some of the top athletes, they look at that and go, I need to be like that. But actually, you only need to be like that at certain times of the year, even at the very highest level. Yeah, So you and you can only afford to be like that at certain times. Yeah. And that was that was the key message that they both that came up with, and so that's almost body weight and body fat periodization, which most athletes would be comfortable with because they understand periodization in a training sense. Is yeah. that you don't do hard track sessions and long runs every alternate day. You have to recover. You have to allow yourself 
phases, whether it's a week or a month, where you bring it back down, you go down in volume, down in intensity. It's the same thing with diet and body mass and fat. If we look at stakeholders in sport that control athletes' careers, in some ways, in individual sports like athletics, people, in theory, should be in a position to speak out more easily compared to team sports where you're going to be selected against and, and, and other complexities there. But that said, um, a lot of these athletes are within training camps and training groups where if they don't toe the line, they don't get a paycheck. And if they don't get a paycheck, they're, they're moving on. And so um, there's unbelievable pressures um, coming at our athletes that are a lot different than 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, our athletes are training much earlier, much harder. And so, you know, I think there's these concepts at times that, oh, our athletes are, aren't as strong as they used to be, but the pressures that they're facing in the social media and the context of body image on social media and Instagram and the sponsorship deals and the amount of, um, training these kids do at younger ages to specialize or not, like we can get into that whole thing. Yeah. Um, it, it's apples to oranges. And so I, I think that there's just a lot of, um, uh, social pressures there to look a certain way to be, and, and to toe the line. Okay, so let's move on to the one of the most popular uh, podcasts we did. And we did a couple of uh, podcasts, and this was the idea of talent identification. We interviewed some amazing people through this process. In fact, this is one of our most talked about subjects on uh, on our Twitter feed. It, it was an amazing podcast that we did because what we found out and what the research that you done and people that we spoke to, David Epstein in particular was one of our guests in one of these talent identification podcasts. But we actually titled it What Makes a Champion? And what stood up for me about these podcasts was that we've all believed that early specialization was the key to success. David Epstein changed that. He certainly changed my opinion. If you read the book, The Range, you should read it if you're interested remotely in the subject and also the, the subject of living life more fully. It's a bit of a game-changing book for me this year. Um, it was amazing to believe that the more generally you are as a youngster, the better chance you have of success as you get older, which kind of was slightly counterintuitive when you look at some of the examples that are often put out into the media. Yeah, and people never learn. Um, <laughs> even Kane, who we've just spoken to, was one of those athletes who was identified at 15 and then earmarked for success. And eventually, as we know, her story didn't end particularly well and it didn't end well under the hand of Alberto Salazar. But it's quite possible that actually what happens there would have been the same irrespective and that's that you can't this is the point is you cannot predict adult success based on childhood success it is exceptionally rare for someone to be a superstar school and adult athlete or sports person yeah the problem is that when it happens we are so attuned to spotting them so we have the likes of A.B. de Villiers in, in South African cricket, who everyone said, watch this guy, he's going to be sensational. And he was. The problem is they said it about 10 other people and none of them were. But now who yeah. cares? Because they disappear. So they become ghosts. And the only person, the only one who survives is the one who then informs the thinking. So it creates this fallacy of a head start. And that's what David has punctured. And there's research also. I mean, he's not the only person. He's not the first person to to propose that. So... The well, it's, message, the, it's the Federer versus Woods comparison. Right, and that's how David starts range. Um, yeah. he, he tells that story. And so Woods is the example, actually. So 
there's the four-year-old kid, golf prodigy, and the father is caddying and, and taking him around and he's playing off, off the adult tee at the age of nine and shooting sub, I don't know, 40 for nine holes. But the problem again is that we see Tiger Woods and we track him from the Bob Hope show when he's four years old to his master's victory in Augusta in 2019. We say, look at this model for what it takes to succeed. But we don't track the 999 failures who started in the same place and didn't succeed. Yeah. And so that's the thing that people have to really struggle with. And I understand I'm not a parent, so I don't have this dilemma. But if I were, I'm pretty sure that I would also overvalue a head start. Yeah. Because it's almost intuitive. If I can do a little bit more than my peers at the age of eight or nine, they'll never catch up. Yeah. You know, we get ahead because in, in the adult world, that's what you do. You work a little bit harder, you get ahead. And once you get ahead, you'll never go backwards. Yeah. But it doesn't work that way in kids because the the trajectory from the age of eight to the age of 25 is is so random and so impossible to predict. So whenever you identify a young athlete as a potential superstar, you're putting a bet down. Yeah. But your, your odds are better at the roulette table than they are when it comes to sport. Really, like the, the, the we're talking... I remember going to a conference once and the woman who was in charge of the US tennis system development program spoke. She said that in her five or six years there, they'd identified 300 players. Five of them had made it. Yeah. So, so that's one in 60. And, and why? Because they specialized too early or because it's just a random, but, well, not random, but it's, it's so rare to be a top class sports person. So, so one of them is what I call, and again, this is in the podcast, How to Make a Champion Part 1. It's the inclusion error. So in other words, we've put our money on the wrong person because we feel that we have to do it at the age of say 12, 13, 14. Why might we be wrong so often? Two reasons. One is you can't predict how that person will develop psychologically because to be an elite athlete, there's a certain set of psychological qualities that are required. And if that person lacks them, then they will never fulfill their physical capabilities. Yeah. And then the other side of that is the physiology. You cannot predict who's going to be an elite athlete until adolescence has played its cards. So 16-year-olds, and, and you've had three kids go, two kids go through this and one on the way. One on the way. <laughs> um, your 15-year-old son and your 17-year-old son are different human beings. Yeah. And so how can you make a prediction? Yeah. Because you don't know how tall they're going to be. You don't know how big they'll be. You don't know what sort of body shape and skeleton and so on they'll have. And those things make a difference to most sports. So until you allow the physiological cards to be played, you can't really predict. And so essentially you, you should delay the selection until at least after that occurs. And when you don't, then you, then you potentially put your money on the wrong person. And the, the biggest problem here is that for every inclusion error where I select wrong i also exclude someone who maybe i should have picked and so you need to delay as long as possible and then last bit is that the early specialization and the early high training volumes when you're 12 13 14 years old and you've been picked up by this toxic system you now start training as though you're a 20 year old that directly damages athletes there's now i think pretty um pretty compelling evidence that early specialization causes increased injury risk, increased risk of burnout, and uh, increased eventually later in life inactivity. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I mean, how do we diversify challenges within a sport? And that's why I think one of the reasons that futsal is such a good um, developmental game for football. It's like, some days kids are playing on sand and another day on cobblestones and, yeah. you know, on a tennis court over the net. And it's to really diversifying the challenges they're facing within that context. Or I, I like Judy Murray's sort of approach, you know, Andy and Jamie Murray's mother in tennis, where she takes kids and because of her name recognition, people are willing to, to give her their kids for development. And they're doing something with a racket and a ball that's tennis-like enough, but it's like they'll be playing through tree branches one day, you know, and all these other sorts of diversified challenges. So I think we should also have systems that, within a given sport, try to capitalize on on diverse challenges, basically. And I think that's doable. Like, I don't yeah. think it matters if someone's putting on a basketball jersey instead of a soccer, instead of a football jersey. Um, so I would I would change our pipelines to alter the deselection and allow sampling for people who want to do it. Uh, delay selection as much as you can. And within a given sport, try to diversify diversify the challenges, you know, do variable practice. So one of the things that we... I don't think we want to talk about it, but sometimes we have to talk about it. And we did a, a, a couple of episodes and we themed up a couple of things. And of course, doping and cheating in sport. Um, we've done a couple of episodes. We, we did the How to Cheat and Get Away With It, which was a very popular podcast, one that we particularly enjoyed, not because we necessarily want to promote the idea of cheating in sport, but because some of the ways that people have cheated over the years have been so incredibly bizarre. But this has been a year as pretty much every single year that goes by, there's always some new story. There's always some fresh controversy. And of course, most recently in, in 2019, the controversy around the Russian athletes, which has been front and center around doping in the world. Yeah, I've, I've got doping fatigue, really. Like, <laughs> I agree. It's been 10 years now of more, even 2006 was when I got my PhD. And I remember even then, the media want to talk when there's a doping story. So yeah. it becomes like the only platform for sports science in the media is can you explain what Lance did? Can you explain what Marion Jones or whoever it was? And so I can't even remember some of the stories from the beginning of the year. Yeah. Um, because this seems like there's so many. Russia is the latest one, and that's not going to go away because they've appealed. I saw yesterday they're, they're banned from the Olympics. Yeah. And so for the next nine months leading into less, uh, eight months leading into Tokyo, doping will be a permanent fixture. You won't be able to say Olympic Games without saying doping. Yeah. Um, and, and then obviously this year we had Salazar um, get banned, which was a surprise <laughs> because – for a big name to go down happens fairly rarely. He's appealing. So that'll be a CAS hearing in 2020. Yeah. If that upholds his ban, we'll talk. If it, if they reject his ban and they let him off, we'll talk. So again, it's going to be unavoidable. It's like sure as night follows day, like doping features. It's frustrating. Just to take us to the Zedazar. I know we've done a podcast on it already, but his stuff was the, the, the cheat, the doping side of it was it was they needed a whistleblower or two to come out to talk about it yeah um but it was quite it's sort of insidious within that oregon product project 
Yeah, but also frustrating because it comes out, the guy gets a four-year ban, which is as severe as the ban gets. Yeah. But then in the decision, they say that Salazar went to great lengths to avoid doping. Well, if you go to great lengths to avoid doping, you don't get four-year bans. So the the action that's taken and the wording that's used seem to me to be difficult to reconcile. And so that one also left a little bit of frustration because I know for a fact that there were so many more allegations made about the misuse of medication. Yeah. So the thyroid use that he was um, he was giving, for instance, Cara Goucher, someone else's thyroid hormones to help her lose weight. There's the weight thing coming up yeah. again. Um, the, the use of testosterone allegedly in some of his athletes. I don't for a second believe that he stopped at the stuff that he eventually got done for. And so, for, for instance, he was found guilty of violating the code because he tested a testosterone cream on his son. Yeah. Allegedly to understand whether sabotage would be possible. Yeah. Um, it's a great story. <laughs> yeah. And we'll get to sabotage in a moment because there's another one from this year on that. But so, so, so if he's, if you're doing that, like, is that all you did? Yeah. Uh, so, so it's a, it's this ethical thing again of you pushing the boundaries, but you're going to stop before it gets illegal but you decide where that is. So the use of medications and therapeutic use exemption seems to me to be where doping currently is, but then people will be apologists for this and say, well, they're not actually breaking any rules. They're just pushing the rules as much as possible. And yeah. in that cheating and sport one, we discussed like, when is it cheating as opposed to fraud, as opposed to what I think we used the word gamesmanship. Yeah, unsportsmanlike unsportsmanlike. behavior. Yeah. There are people who believe that the use of medication is just unsportsmanlike because it's not against the rules. But that's the ethical vacuum <laughs> that yeah. we now seem to exist in. And I guess in an era where sport is professional, you're going to do everything possible to win. Yeah. And therefore, if you can bend the rules or make them work for you, you're going to do everything possible to do that. Yeah, so Sky's doctor was famous for saying, and, and it was at a meeting here in Cape Town, there was a line on their jersey and he says, we will go up to this line and no further. Yeah. But that line is not a solid line. It's a broken line and sometimes it's a smudged line and then you get situations where they do go further. And so now you're using cortisone for a chest infection. <laughs> if you have a chest infection that requires cortisone, you shouldn't be on a bike. You should be in bed. Yeah. But that's the kind of norm. That's the thing that's done. There's painkillers. There's cortisone potentially for weight loss out of competition and they say it's fine because it's not illegal yeah you can be tested for it and it's not positive until it's in competition use so there's all these murky gray things and it means that what you get on doping is this non-stop drip of accusation and insinuation and nothing ever sticks yeah but you know that something's rotten because it smells bad but you can't put your finger on exactly what the cause of that is you know it's it's hell of a frustrating. One of the more entertaining, I think we kind of had a, a had a hall of fame when it comes to um, doping excuses, and I think the one that stands out for me was the athlete that gave the excuse that he'd been was it kissing his girlfriend, and yeah. therefore she'd been on some sort of um, medication, and therefore he contracted this medication by excessively kissing his girlfriend. Yeah, they were in they were in India um, on a holiday together. Is that, that's the one, right? Something like that. Yeah. And she was taking this, this drug because she had some sort of infection, um, and then kissing passionately. That's right. And, and part of the defense is they produced passport stamps and holiday plans and so on to argue that this was plausible because they were where they said they were. I just needed a selfie. 
to show them kissing passionately just to prove their yeah exactly their innocence. the day before dated the day before the um, <laughs> day before the, the the test was done so there was that I mean we spoke there was one French athlete who said she got an EPO positive because she ran through puddles in a contaminated wasteland and splashed EPO on up onto her shorts the French have a new entry in 2019 from a few weeks ago the steeplechaser called Ophelie Claude Boxberger whose <laughs> argument is that her masseuse injected her with EPO while she was asleep. And the story gets really convoluted. And these things are convoluted even in English, but on Google Translate from French, it's, <laughs> it's more difficult. But the story goes, apparently she'd, she'd, she'd dismissed this guy, he used to be a coach for sexual harassment, inappropriate touching or something, I'm, I'm not sure. Then he ends up going out with her mother, becomes her stepfather. <laughs> And her mother pressurizes her into letting him back in the team. He becomes a masseuse. So now the same bloke who she said inappropriately touched her or was sexually harassing her when she was younger is now her masseuse, which is, first of all, incredibly weird. And then the allegation is that he's injected EPO into her while she was asleep one night. She wakes up. He says, oh, I just pinched you really hard. No, it's nothing to worry about. She goes back to sleep. <laughs> Fails the EPO test. He's apparently confessed to this. All right. Um, the investigators are saying, no, he's only confessing because then it means she won't take the fall. Right. And when I read stuff like this, I'm like, if doping was a criminal offense, he would never do that. Yeah. He'd never confess because now imagine going to jail for 18 months yep. to be someone else's fall guy. Yeah. Maybe he would. I don't know how much he values the mom. I don't know. <laughs> but but um, anyway, that's a new entry for you. That's a very good entry. And of course, yeah. one, the one that stands out, of course, is the Paralympic athletes. That apparently, and we're going to move on to an interesting subject here. But one of the one of the subjects that has come up probably more often than not, for want of a better a term, is the idea of testicles or testes, and uh, the Paralympic <laughs> athletes who were basically squeezing their testicles to raise their adrenaline levels so they could compete more efficiently. Right. So what happens there is they can't feel the pain. Yeah. But they still get the autonomic nervous system. Your body's reflex nervous system that old fight or flight how do you know in. how hard to squeeze in if you can't oh, feel the pain i don't think you do mm -hmm. so that's the yeah. danger that's why it's dangerous yeah because you can actually really self-harm yeah and then what it does is it spikes the blood pressure and the adrenaline levels and then they go into competition with theoretically an advantage so the the the, the counteraction to that is to actually measure blood pressure in athletes before they compete so they do that in the paralympics it's called boosting so that was discussed it was in that um cheating in sport episode and i think most people go like wow and that's in the paralympics you know like all about the human spirit and it's all about participation no no it's still about winning and whatever <laughs> by whatever means necessary yeah. even if it means i've got to and and it's not just crushing their testicles they also stick pins into themselves because it gives you the same yeah. autonomic reflex so it's a pretty dangerous yeah but an example of the measures that people go to yeah amazing that uh, able-bodied athletes don't do that i imagine some of them have tried those tactics if you think about it mm. just uh harming themselves to get the adrenaline and the uh, blood pressure up to be able to be competitive i don't know that i mean a paralympics wouldn't need it either but i have heard rumors of athletes who walk onto track having just had adrenaline shots. really mm. yeah yeah so. so the other interesting uh, testicle conversation we had, uh, and there were a couple, we won't bring them all up, but so one of the ones I remember, we were speaking to um, uh, Janine Gray, Dr. Janine Gray, who is a specialist uh, physiotherapist, and uh, she was talking specifically about um, cricket and, and, the, and the back troubles that cricketers have and how to get through it, but she talked about how 
you can activate your lower core. And I remember a couple of times, uh, we've played this clip a couple of times in past podcasts, that for men to be able to activate their lower core, they need to pull up their scrotum. That's the cue, yeah. That was the cue. And uh, we laughed about it at the time, but uh, I think... Ever since that day, I've been pulling up my scrotum probably more often than I had previously. Not enough, though, Mike. Not enough. <laughs> Not enough. I wish because, I'd done it more. Because around the time of the Rugby World Cup, we did <laughs> a head injury assessment on on Mike because mm-hmm. we wanted listeners to understand right. what happens when a player gets a head impact and then goes off with a concussion test on the side of the field. Yeah. And Mike had to do a couple of balance exercises. And having seen those balance performances, I think <laughs> your scrotum needs a bit more pulling up. <laughs> There you go then. Yes, that was an interesting one because uh, one of the conversations you and I had about that that balance test was that you know there are rugby players at the at the highest level that can do it coming off the field and they can do these balance tests. And I struggled to do them, having not been fatigued. Mm. Obviously, that's got a lot to do with my core stability, which I need to work on. But it it was one of the key changes in rugby this year and you were very involved in that process yeah i still am i mean i'm like got data coming out of my eyes uh where we've got literally i'm not even exaggerating fourteen thousand tests that have been done on professional players and we're looking at how they perform before or after exercise this is with the world rugby yeah this yeah. is all through world rugby so that's all meant to guide and improve that clinical process because if we can you know at the moment the, the, the tool that's used in rugby picks up about 80% of the cases. So if you tested 100 concussed players, 80 of them would be picked up, which yeah. means that 20 are not. And so how can we make that tool more accurate so that we only miss 10 or in theory none? So that's a big challenge for the sport moving forward, and that'll be a big focus next year. So that's the case for rugby making itself a bit more safe. Yeah, so that's that's on the management side of concussion. So, well, more the diagnosis, the clinical management. So yeah. the two the two elements always for safety is how do you manage it when it's happened, but prevention is even better than cure. So how do you prevent it from happening in the first place? So there's a lot of stuff going on on both sides, um, yeah. some of which is not always popular, like we had controversies around high tackles this year. And that's really only because World Rugby is trying very hard to clamp down on those because that will prevent head injuries. So with that, I know we're going to gloat a bit because we are from South Africa, but the Springboks win at the Rugby World Cup was obviously a massive highlight, not just for us as sports lovers, but for people in South Africa, and we saw amazing celebrations. But let's just talk a little bit about the rugby because you're so involved in it. Do we know that the changes in the game made the Rugby World Cup safer this year, or is that research still to come out? Uh, st- still, it, it, it won't even come out because it's too small, you know, like you were 45 matches. Yeah. And it's very hard to infer meaning from a small group of matches like that. What we do know is that in the last two years, the concussion rates around the world have trended down as the high tackles have been clamped down on. And so we've seen about a 15 to 20% reduction. So that's encouraging early signs. But the big thing in the next two years will be, can we prove that? So at the World Cup, we can quantify the risk of being upright as opposed to bent because that gets coded and we know how many head injuries happen in each scenario. And so I was looking at that yesterday, actually, and the, the risk of, an, of a head injury and a concussion when a tackler is upright is about two and a half times higher than when they're bent at the waist. At the under 20 World Championships earlier this year, it was twice as high, um, upright versus bent. 
And in our global study... Just grab upright versus bent. What do you mean by upright versus bent? So imagine upright is I'm carrying the ball into you and you present your chest to me, the front of your chest. So you're standing, not necessarily bolt upright, but you might be squatting somewhat. But what I'm going to make contact with is the front of your face and the front of your chest. Right. Bent at your waist means that I'm going to make contact or you're going to make contact with me on the top part of your shoulder. And so that's the position that we think is safer based on the research. And so between 2015 and now, we've got data from what would be close to a thousand head injuries where the risk of a head injury is around twice as high if the tackle is upright compared to bent. And so we're trying to drive this change of saying bend in order to avoid head contacts. Um, it's it's tricky because the game is so dynamic and so fluid and so fast moving that some of these are unavoidable. And sometimes, in fact, a lot of the time, bent tacklers do get injured. Yeah. But they get more injured, relatively speaking. Per 100 upright tackles, you are twice as likely to be injured as, as you are per 100 bent tackles. So that's, that's the message. And that's not going to change because even though it's early days yet in, in the data we have, the, the early days suggest that it's right. The big data set suggests that it's right. And so we keep going. So for those of you who are coaching rugby at, uh, at any sort of level, whether, whether it's school level to university level to club level, mm. I, I guess down the road, the, the traditional old way of going in low on a tackle is going to be more enforced because these rules are going to be make this, the game, they want the game to be safer. Yeah. And therefore, the way we were taught to, to tackle at school will be potentially the way that people will have to tackle in the future, otherwise they'll be disciplined. Yeah, and you don't, you see, where it gets a little bit nuanced is you don't want them diving at the knees. Yeah. Because head to knee also has high risk. It's not as high as head to head and head to shoulder, but it's not low. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other thing is diving at the knees could injure the, the player's knees. You get ACL injuries. Yeah, but so. not as catastrophic as head to head. No, yeah. no. So, so it's almost like if you imagine the, the player standing before you, there's a red zone from the shoulders up, there's an orange zone from the upper thigh down, and then there's a green zone from like sort of mid mid thigh all the way to sort of say sternum, right? yeah. armpit line. That green zone is where you want to be. Or another way to think about it is the old Goldilocks zone. You know, not too high, not too low, just in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to throw some award suggestions for you this year. Maybe even this decade. We are yeah, ending a decade. Speaking of, before we go into ours, let's run who I'm an avid reader and listener of their you podcast. Are. I cite them all the time because it's the only track podcast out there that I know. And, they, and they're good, funny guys and they're knowledgeable. They've, they've been doing this race of the decade thing. I don't necessarily agree with what their likely outcome will be because the, the best race has already been eliminated. But they ran it like basketball's um, NCAA championships where you have 64 seeds and then one by one they get eliminated in a knockout. And they're down to their final... I guess four by the time this goes out. Maybe they would have even announced a winner. As we're sitting here recording, they're down to the last eight. And so, for instance, David Rudisha's 800 London win is in there. Um, yeah. The marathon world record by Kipchoge is in there. Uh, a couple others. Wade for Nikak, actually, the 400-meter world record from Rio's among the Yeah. The, I think that'll probably make the final on the one side, but we're all at least a semi. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think of race of the year? Race of the decade. The race of the decade was, for me, was <laughs> Chicago 2010. Yeah. 
That was when Sammy went. Just inside the decade. Yeah, so that's why. that's this, And the reason it's not winning is because there's a significant recency bias in the voting. Because, like, I can't even remember what happened in 2018, never mind 2010. Yeah. But I was just reminded of this because I looked it up. And Sammy Wanjiru, who then died, I think, two years after that in a fall from a balcony. Yeah, suspiciously. uh, Yeah. Um, Or sadly. What a shame because he he was an unbelievable marathon runner. Put a pair of vapor flies on his feet. Yeah. Um, he produced, by the way, what I think was the best marathon of the 2010s, the t- 2000s, sorry, because he won Beijing, like in a ridiculous performance also. But he beat Tegai Kabedi in Chicago in what, in the last couple of miles, looked like a cycling event because they were trading the lead. It was one in front, then the other, attack, counter attack. It was as close to a running race I've seen that looked like a cycling event as, as, as I've ever, ever seen. Yeah. And it was for $500,000 because whoever won it was going to be the world major champion. So the stakes were high, the racing was fast, and it was just brutal. They were slugging it out. It was, it was for me, the best road race. The Rudisha Olympic 800, you remember that? That was when he basically went out and said, I'm going to run world record by myself and you yeah. guys can all line up behind me. And so he just towed everyone around the field for 800 meters. As a performance from one to eight, that's easily the best race ever, maybe. Yeah. Because everyone ran PBs and national records. I think the guy in eight ran like 143. He came last. <laughs> um And it, they just strung it out and it was like watching seven greyhounds chase a rabbit, you know? Um, but for me, fascinating and brilliant, but not exciting in a competitive sense, because I don't think anyone changed position for the last 400 meters because everyone was just in a slot running as fast as they could. Yeah. So those two, those two jump out. Um, I thought that the 1500 woman in London last year, two years ago, when Faith Kipiagon won and Semenya got bronze, I forget who got the silver. It might have been Dababa. That was a terrific race because it had elements of everything, you know, tactical, nuance. and Yeah. But, I mean, that didn't even make the top 64 with Let's Run. So there you go. So what we were, what we were talking and sort of maybe theorizing about when we were doing the podcast around the shoe was that maybe one of the consequences of the shoe is that the, the idea of time in sport is less, it will become less important. In other words, competition and competitiveness within a, an event will become more, hopefully, what everybody will want to watch. And we cited the example of the World Championships and the Olympic Games, saying that the reason why those events are so fantastic to watch is because they're not, there's no pace setters involved. There's no um, especially flat course for the marathon or anything like that. It's always designed where it's one-on-one and whoever the best is on the day. And there's something really pure about that. And I think if my hope for the world of athletics in particular, we're not just focused on athletics on this podcast, but particularly on athletics, that the consequence of us maybe moving away from it where time becomes everything, now that that two-hour marathon mark has been broken, yes, some people will say, you know, some people will say, yes, hopefully it gets broken in a race more legitimately than it was on on around um, a, a, a set track. But mm. What I'd like to see is that people are focused on the competition of sport and, and more events where moving away from the Diamond League events where they're not pace set, where it's just like everybody on the track there's there to win and you race and you have the best person is because those are the events that we talk about less so than the events that are just about time. Yeah. And if I think of marathons this decade, Boston yeah. has thrown up for me some of the most exciting ones. There was Meb winning it, I think, in 2014. 
because he went off ahead of everyone else and they all sort of looked at one and I was like we know this guy but he's not really a threat and the yeah. next thing they knew he was two minutes ahead and he was a threat and there was intrigue there because and that wouldn't happen if you if you threw a pace setter to take them through halfway in 62 minutes it doesn't yeah. happen yeah uh, Boston also produced the Kawuchi run I think where he on that incredibly cold day there was an incredibly hot day that might have been in the previous decade so it yeah. throws up variation that I don't think you find in in other in other marathons. I mean, New York's got no pacemakers, and it also produces some good. But yeah. in in London and Berlin, pace setters in London. I mean, the, the lots world, of pacemakers though. Yeah. <laughs> in in London and Berlin, Berlin especially, where the world record was set, that was boring. Yeah. Because he was on his own for like the last fifteen yeah. kilometers, and really every two minutes and forty five seconds or so, you had to pay attention because. The only thing to look at was whether he was holding 257s. Yeah, that's right. There's no, there's no other, yeah. for me, there's no other intrigue there. Yeah. And it, what's interesting is like on the track, they've had a couple of races recently where they have these last man standing events where they run and at the end of each lap, whoever's last gets eliminated. Oh, it's like cycling, track cycling, exactly they'll like take that. the hindmost. Yeah. And that creates a lot of intrigue because yeah. do you go hard? Or do you actually wait for the last hundred each lap and have a sprint? Yeah. But you're also doing that sprint within an endurance race. So when I look at the sport, oh, it's a good idea for an event that. Yeah, I think right. it's very cool. Yeah. When I look at the sport now and I look at the IAAF and they've just been the 5,000s from the Diamond Leagues and so on. It's just the most I exciting just, event at the World Championships. It's certainly the most relatable one yeah. because that's the one that park runners do. And I just felt that there were other solutions they could have looked at before they cut it. You know, tinker with the format. Yeah. Let them do these last man standing type things or... Even just don't chuck a pace setter to run 61 second laps for the first eight laps and then yeah. they drop out. It all slows down to jog and then they sprint furiously for 300 meters. The formula was so dull. Yeah. And then they cut the event. They could have tried to change the formula. So, yeah. Yeah. What would you say? We talked about event of the, if you had to look at a sportsman of the decade, is it always going to be somebody, a soccer player? Does it feel like uh, soccer is the one where it's the most popular sport? It's probably the most competitive to get to the top level. Therefore, on a pure numbers game, the Lionel yeah. Messi's of this world are the best sportsmen. Yeah, although you can't pick like that. I mean, it's. I, I think it's probably, some people like to pick like it's that. Probably true. Um, so let's say you were equally dominant in football as you were in uh, kayaking or growing. Or Lewis Hamilton in or, Formula One. Yeah. How do you evaluate the athletic performances of those? I would think then a factor is what's the pool that you're competing against. And then I think it makes a difference. But when you're not, when you're super dominant, let's say in rowing and there's no one else in another sport, then maybe, I don't know, it's, it's difficult. These yeah. are conversations for pubs and beers. I know. But um, if we had a beer right now and we were sitting in a pub, would you be able to call a, a sort of sportsman of the decade? I mean, it's a big call. Yeah. <laughs> so if you look at who's dominated their sports, and like we're not big on the football here, right? No, we're not. Who's been absolutely dominant in the decade? Bolt in the early parts was track athlete. Yeah, dominant. but as we said, the, the Bolt was almost the, between 2000 and 2010. Yeah, he spanned yeah. the two decades. So yeah. if you think his first half of this decade was good enough, then maybe he still is. Yeah. But who's been there the whole decade? Messi and Ronaldo, Djokovic and Nadal. Yeah. Federer. You see, this is where I've lost track of time. See, now Federer is my choice. Federer. Because he's made, managed to make comeback after comeback. And every time you think he's done, 
he's not. And Tiger Woods, to some extent, also another one, a candidate for making a great comeback after seemingly. Yeah, if you want to talk comeback of the year, like I think that comeback one, of the that one's got to be there. Um, yeah. I can't remember, did Federer win his first batch of slams at the end of the 2000s or was it the middle or. Like somebody who listens to the podcast who loves tennis will tell see, us the answers to this. I, I do love a bit of tennis, but I don't yeah. know the stats, you know, like I can reel off running stats, but I can't yeah. tell you the tennis ones. But like of the, let's say of the 40 grand slams this year, how have they been split? I think probably Djokovic has won half of them. And then Andy Murray, Nadal, Federer might have shared almost the other half and then one or two surprise when it's Chilich, for instance, and so on. So yeah, you know, I suppose it based purely on results, you, you, I've got to say Djokovic, Messi, yeah. uh, Ronaldo, I guess. They've shared probably equal numbers of titles there. Yeah. Uh, Running-wise, Kipchoge's been dominating marathons since 2011-12, hasn't True. he? True. Yeah. So you've got to think. He's got a good, there's a good case for him for athlete or sportsman of the decade. Yeah. Maybe not of the year, but of the decade. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, who else is there? Swimmers? Not really. I mean, Phelps, <laughs> Phelps came back. Did, did well in London, but it wasn't quite like Beijing 2008 levels. Yeah. 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 Interesting one. So let us know what you think of the awards that we should be handing out this year, because that is a very open subject and it is one that we can talk around in pubs over the festive season. And we're interested to see what you think about uh, your athletes of the decade. Just casting, I love throwing this question at you. If you had to look into the crystal ball to the next decade, what do you think is going to happen in sports science? Are we going to be f going down to basics or is technology going to become the dominant player in the sporting area, do you think? I think technology is already dominant. Um, it won't return to basics, you don't think? No, no. The advantage to be gained from the proper use of technology is large enough. I mean, I don't think it's massive, but I think even if it's 2%, that's enough that you have to have it. So it becomes a necessity. Yeah. And then what, what used to be a luxury, and I, I use this analogy even when we did tech in sport, is I've got on my watch a piece of tech that 20 years ago would have cost thousands of dollars for an athlete to go and That's get. Right. You know, the, the data I get from my 200-pound watch <laughs> is was inaccessible 20 years ago. So that's become the new normal, and I can't see that regressing. I think it'll be the same. Um, so I, I, I genuinely don't know. I think it depends on sports. If you listen to... Gary Kirsten and Nick Mallett and so on, they've got systematic and they're very robust, clear thinkers, but I wouldn't describe them as scientific thinkers. And so that makes me wonder sometimes whether the future of sports coaching is, is actually to, it's becoming more and more about leadership and people and emotional intelligence and less about IQ and data intelligence. Yeah. Like, so for instance, MBA programs a decade ago recognized that. So they don't teach you what to do they teach you how to lead and they teach you soft skills so that i think that becomes more important which doesn't negate sports science but i, I don't think it yeah it doesn't it doesn't put us sports scientists like to think that they're driving innovation but i don't think that they often are yeah yeah um big stories for 2020 the olympics will be massive yeah the transgender issue will be huge um as we bigger said, than this year oh yeah transgender will be massive because Hubbard, uh, <laughs> Lauren Hubbard. I was going to say L. Ron Hubbard, but that's that's Scientology, yeah. not uh, Lauren Hubbard is a weightlifter representing New Zealand who, unless there's an injury or something goes wrong, will become the first 
openly transgender Olympic athlete, depending on <laughs> doping bans and violations and whatnot, she might have an outside shot at a medal. And then it'll be global because that story was big this year. There was a Pacific Games where she won gold and the two Samoans who she beat staged effectively a silent protest on the, on the podium. But it's only the Pacific Games. The Olympics yeah. is another another level. I mean, as, and as we're sitting here, like I've received a few emails because World Rugby will be, I think, at the epicenter of the issue because the demographics of who plays rugby and where transgender reassignments or, or these reassignments are common overlaps. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. secondly, rugby's got this additional concern around the safety. You know, if if a biological male who transitions to play rugby against women does not lose the male advantages, there there could well be risks. It's unknown. And so rugby has to address that. And we've we've convened a meeting in February to discuss with world experts their views on legal, medical, scientific performance and social and ethical matters. So I think it's going to be massive. I think yeah. it'll be a huge talking point. So we'll have to at some point discuss that on the pod. The shoe will continue to <laughs> by the way, the Irish Times made the shoe this athlete of the year. <laughs> um, That's the right award. I think I think Ian O'Rourden was the journalist. I might have butchered your name. Sorry, Ian. Uh, and yeah, he said athlete of the year is the Vaporfly. Yeah. That's quite funny. Yeah, uh, that'll be the same because no other company is going to match in nine months what Nike's done probably over five or six years. So it'll still be there. Yeah. At some point, we'll have to let it go and just accept the new normal. Yeah. Uh, what else? Um, yeah, the Olympics is going to be cool because, like, you'll see sports that you've always seen, and we can try to bring you some insights. So, for instance, yeah. what what makes a boat go fast in rowing compared to not go fast? Yeah. What yeah, makes a great good interviews rower, lined like up for that archery shooting? You know, like yeah. What's going through a shooter's brain? Like, there's some studies, for instance, on like EEG activity in a world class Olympic shooter. Yeah, and and looking at the brain activity and the electrical activity, and it's completely different from a normal person's. So we can we can look forward yeah. to I think some fun around the Olympics. Yeah, well, yeah. we're looking forward to doing those. We're going to talk to some of the experts in those fields close to the time yeah. and get some insights into that, which will be very fascinating. Wish lists. Wish lists. We want what we want three? to talk to the best, yeah. and I think we've done that this year. We've talked to the best of the best in the different spaces that we've been uh, having conversations. And um, we've had an incredible amount of uh, in, involvement on our Twitter feed, which has been very educational for me and lots of people getting involved. So thank you to all of you that have been involved in that. But uh, it has been one of those years where I think we, when we started this podcast, uh, you know, had the idea for the podcast three years ago, we, we made it happen this year. And we thank all of you for listening and for giving your feedback. It's been an incredible uh, time just to, I've learned a lot just from chatting to you, Ross, and through the many guests that we've had. Yeah, I think it's been great. You haven't said who your wish list is. I, I would like to talk to Usain Bolt, purely because I think it would be fascinating to have a conversation with him about what it's like to participate, how he deals with pressure, how what it's like to run that fast. Um, I know there was a chance we were going to talk to Justin Gatlin at one point this year, which never actually came off. I think you Thank were quite happy, happy that it didn't happen. Yeah, that's a he, is a, he is a bit tainted, I agree. Mm. But Usain Bolt isn't, and I, and I would love to chat to him, but I, I think he is quite difficult to chat to because he's got such a strong Jamaican accent that I think we might struggle to get him to I, actually yeah. tell us that we would be able to understand him. I would love to read his mind. Yeah. I don't, I don't always trust athletes that they – 
I mean, even I, every human being struggles to actually express how they feel. Yeah. It takes a degree of introspection and then an ability to communicate exactly what they're feeling. And I'm not convinced if you could, if you could really unlock what's, and that's why, for instance, Dom Scott and Amelia Boone and yeah. other guests we've had have been so good is because I feel like they have looked hard at themselves and then done quite a good job of projecting and explaining what they saw. Yeah. They were looking at themselves. Yeah. But Bolt, I agree. Bolt would be really interesting if he would be if you could if you could completely unwrap the mind. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That, like so, for me, wish list would be for the same reason Armstrong and Johan Brunel. Yeah. But again, on the proviso that they actually open up, because yes. I don't think we've heard truth. Well, Lance Armstrong's a fellow podcaster now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a handful of scientists that I'm quite keen to get on, you know, talking about like their, what are quite narrow fields. Like I want to talk to the world authority on building muscle in the gym. Yeah. Let's get him and, and like really cut through some of the media nonsense that sometimes exists. Absolutely. Athlete wise, if I had one guy to sit down with for two hours, it'd be Andy Murray. Ah, okay. Uh, Cause I find him to be incredibly candid and he, he seems quite blunt. And I think that would make for quite good insights. Like seems a bit grumpy. <laughs> yeah, he does. But I, I don't mind that. I'm, I'm okay with. Yeah. I'm okay with that. If we could get him to, that would be cool. Just need a Scottish translator. Yeah, we we with subtitles up. <laughs> um, yeah, but there's so much to look forward to next year. So I'm really looking forward to it. And I also echo your thoughts. Like it's been like the engagement has been really good. Yeah, it's been amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So thanks to everyone. And send us your tips as well, you know. Absolutely. Like we're, always, we're always interested in covering what's relevant and how Absolutely. do we know if you don't tell us. Exactly, exactly. Professor Ross Tucker, thank you very much again for your time today and thank you to all of you that have listened to our podcast. Yeah, season one is finishing off with this podcast. We'll be starting season two in 2020. It's going to be a wonderful year as we look towards the Olympic Games and all the other special events and sporting events around the world. For us, for the meantime, we'll chat to you in 2020. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 